Viewpoint on Mormonism, the program that examines the teachings of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints from a biblical perspective. Viewpoint on Mormonism is sponsored by Mormonism Research Ministry. Since 1979, Mormonism Research Ministry has been dedicated to equipping the body of Christ with answers regarding the Christian faith in a manner that expresses gentleness and respect. And now, your host for today's Viewpoint on Mormonism. So glad you could be with us for this edition of Viewpoint on Mormonism. I'm your host, Bill McKeever, founder and director of Mormonism Research Ministry, and with me today is Eric Johnson, my colleague at MRM. Yesterday, we began looking at what became M. Russell Ballard's last conference message. M. Russell Ballard was the acting president of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles at this time. He would die about six weeks later, so this was his last public message. He was in his mid-90s. The title of his message was Praise to the Man. And a question that I asked Eric yesterday at the beginning of the show is, you have the opportunity to give what could be your last public sermon. What do you think the topic would be? And both Eric and myself would agree that we would want to focus on the person of Jesus Christ Not only what he's done in our personal lives, but what he can do in the life of anyone else who puts their complete trust in what he did for them on the cross at Calvary. But that was not the topic for M. Russell Ballard. No, his title was Praise to the Man, but it wasn't the man Christ Jesus. It was Joseph Smith. And that's going to be the focus of his attention in what would be the last public sermon that he ever gave. I think you're bringing out a good point. Uh, What would you give a sermon on if you were at the end of your life? He gives praise of the man. And yesterday we cited the third paragraph of his talk where he said, I'd like to share with you some things that have been in my mind. I have seemed to have the prophet Joseph in my mind the last few months. I've sat and contemplated his glorious responsibility in becoming the prophet of this, the dispensation of the fullness of time. At the end of his talk, he's acting as if he's talking to people for the last 50 years, that this is the last time he's going to ever get to talk to them again. It's, to me, very sad that he's going to contemplate uh, Joseph Smith rather than Jesus. I wrote an article based on the idea, if it's possible that this apostle repented at the end of his life. Based on this sermon, Bill, I'm not the judge, but I don't think that he really ever gave his life to Jesus. You can go to our website, mrm.org, slash, did LDS apostle repent at the end? Those are hyphens between that. Did LDS Apostle repent at the end? I'm going to say, based on this sermon, he did not. Well, one of the things that M. Russell Ballard believed, no doubt, because he mentions it in this message, is, of course, the necessity of commandment keeping. And whenever you say there's something that you must do in order to be truly saved, what you've basically done is say that what Jesus did was not enough. You see, the big difference between New Testament Christianity and Mormonism is we believe that when Jesus paid the price, it was a complete payment. There was not one thing left to do. As Spurgeon would say, not one farthing needed to be paid. It was paid completely for the sins of the believer. In Mormonism, that's not the case. Jesus didn't do enough. There's still a lot that you must do. You're only saved by grace after 
all you can do. Now, he talks about thinking, I'll do my best. I'll do the best I can, which kind of resonates with 2 Nephi 25-23. And that's basically how Latter-day Saints feel that they must be saved. In uh, the Deseret News, December 6, 2007, there was an article titled, Elder Ballard Responds to Evangelical Criticism. And in this article, again, this is not that long ago, 2007, this is what he said. There, and he's referring to evangelical Christians, are locked into the Nicene Creed. We're locked into the restoration and the experiences of Joseph Smith. And that will undoubtedly be an issue until God himself comes. So by his own admission, what he said there in 2007, he hasn't changed his mind at all in 2023. But when he says locked into the Nicene Creed, does Ballard not know what the Nicene Creed's about? The whole Council of Nicaea was about whether or not Jesus was God, because that was the argument. Arius was one who was going around convincing believers that there was a time when he was not and that he was not deity. That was the controversy of Nicaea. Well, you talk to most Latter-day Saints, and I'm sure even Ballard would at least agree that they believe Jesus was a God. Now, we would say he's, he's the second person of the Trinity. There's one God eternally existing in three persons. Now, Ballard wouldn't believe that. He believed more in tritheism. But what a silly comment to make. We're locked into the Nicene Creed. We're locked into the New Testament, and we've often said that many times on this show. We go by what the New Testament has to say. Even though we may believe what the creeds say, the creeds never usurp authority over the New Testament. Christians have always said that. But going on in his sermon, Ballard says, I think how grateful we are as members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints that Joseph Smith, a boy who desired to know what he needed to do to have his sins forgiven, found the courage to go into a grove of trees near his home in Palmyra and there kneel in prayer and by his own statement pray out loud for the first time. And I brought out yesterday what Joseph Smith did in order to get his sins forgiven, at least by his own account in his 1832 diary is merely cry out to God, ask for God to forgive him and have mercy. And according to his story, Jesus appeared. Now, remember, this is the first vision account that Ballard is referring to. Even though the first vision account that Smith is giving in his 1832 diary doesn't read the same as what most Latter-day Saints believe, because God the Father isn't mentioned in this account at all. You would think that if God the Father showed up, how Joseph Smith missed a good opportunity to say that because he doesn't say that at all. I personally think that was a story that he embellished as the years went on to where it finally finds its way into the 1838 account. But certainly God the Father isn't a part of the narrative in 1832, nor is there any hint in his 1832 diary account that there was some kind of religious excitement going on that caused him to go out into the woods in the first place? See, the 1832 account gives a different reason why Joseph Smith went out into the woods to pray. In this account, the reason was is because he was concerned about the forgiveness of his sins. Bill uh, Ballard continues in his talk and says, On that occasion, as Joseph got on his knees in what we call the Sacred Grove— the heavens opened. Two personages, brighter than the noonday sun, appeared before him. One spoke to him and said, Joseph, this is my beloved son, hear him. And that's from Joseph Smith, History 117 in the Pearl of Great Price. 
Thus began the restoration of the fullness of the everlasting gospel of Jesus Christ. Let me stop you there, Eric, because let's go back and look at some of the details. On that occasion, as Joseph got on his knees in what we call the sacred grove, the heavens open, two personages brighter than noonday sun appeared before him. One spoke to him and said, Joseph, this is my beloved son, hear him. That's a pretty big deal. That's not mentioned in his 1832 account. He never says that there were two personages. He never mentions God the Father. He never mentions this conversation where one of them says, this is my beloved son, hear him. You would think if you really heard that, that would be a detail that you would always have to repeat. But he doesn't do it. In fact, we don't find anybody in the early years of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and it was founded in 1830, we don't find anybody in those early years ever mentioning that Joseph Smith was visited by two personages, and one of them said, this is my beloved son, hear him. Nobody records that in a journal. And furthermore, none of the critics of the LDS Church in the early years such as E.D. Howe or Alexander Campbell. Neither of those. Campbell's criticism came out in 1832, two years after the church was founded. E.D. Howe's criticism, Mormonism Unveiled, came out in 1834, four years after the church was founded. Neither of those two men writing a criticism of the LDS movement start with the first vision. They go after the Book of Mormon and the visitation by the angel Moroni. Why wouldn't they mention the first vision if that was a part of the narrative? You would think they would know from their religious upbringing that no man can see God and live. And they would have zeroed in on that, knowing that Joseph Smith could not have seen the face of God and lived to tell about it. But yet neither of these men, nor a lot of the other criticisms in the early years, going clear up into the early 1840s, ever start their criticism with the first vision. They don't mention it at all. I think that's a big point, because this would have been an easy target for the critics to have gone after. Certainly they go after the Book of Mormon, and there's plenty to go after. But there's a lot in the first vision that could have been used had it been around before it comes out in the 1830s. I mean, from 1820 all the way until the mid-1830s, you're talking 15 years. Isn't Joseph Smith talking about this to everybody? Isn't he going around and saying, guess what happened? I can't believe it. And then wasn't he persecuted, supposedly, for telling this story? there's silence on the side of the critics, and that doesn't seem to make any sense. And what's very telling about this is the fact that Ballard, in this conference message, goes to the first vision and hails that event as being so important because, as he says, thus began the restoration of the fullness of the everlasting gospel of Jesus Christ. Ballard sees this story as a real evangelical event, and I don't mean evangelical as we would understand it, but this is a, an event that can be used to get converts to listen to what you have to say. Ballard goes to that story. Many Latter-day Saints go to that story. We hear a number of leaders in the LDS Church go to that story. Why? Because that is a huge drawing card, they believe. Because there, God separates the LDS people and the LDS Church from the rest of the churches in the entire world, and of course, proclaims that all the other churches are wrong. Their creeds are an abomination, and their professors are all corrupt. Why are they using this 
as a primary story, a primary event, but yet nobody in the early years of the church ever uses it as a primary event. And 13th President Ezra Taft Benson said in Teachings of Presence of the Church, Ezra Taft Benson from 2014, page 105, this is a correlated church curriculum, the first vision of the prophet Joseph Smith is bedrock theology to the church. And 15th President Gordon B. Hinckley says, our whole strength rests on the validity of that vision. It either occurred or it did not occur. If it did not, then this work is a fraud. Upon that unique and wonderful experience stands the validity of the church. He gave that in general conference, recorded in the Ensign Magazine, November 2002, page 80. And that wasn't the only statement that Gordon B. Hinckley said about it. He said other things as well. He said that if this didn't even happen, we're engaged in a blasphemy. And also a great champ. What do you do with that? You can't ignore something like that. But the fact that we don't find anybody talking about this in the early years of the church tends to tell me that this is a story that Joseph Smith is going to come up with eventually. But it wasn't something that he was saying in the early years, certainly not found in his 1832 to 34 diary. He doesn't mention God the Father at all. The reasons for going out and praying in the first place were not the same as Latter-day Saints are led to believe today. That tells us that this story is evolving. He's adding to the story as he goes along to where finally in 1838, that becomes the account that the church wants everybody to believe and memorize. Thank you for listening. If you would like more information regarding Mormonism Research Ministry, we encourage you to visit our website at www.mrm.org, where you can request our free newsletter, Mormonism Researched. We hope you will join us again as we look at another viewpoint on Mormonism.